And as you listen, again, as I often say, it's not so much that there's something to remember or learn or, you know, no quiz at the end or anything like that. It's really more to listen in a way to sense what resonates with what you already know to be true and what is of real value to you, you know in your own heart. So I kind of want to follow up on what I talked about a bit last week, which had to do with uh, wisdom of uncertainty. Um, and yesterday we had a lovely event here that was part of the capital campaign, fundraising and so forth. Um, but for me, mostly it was a chance to sit and have dialogue with my very dear friend and partner for many years in teaching, Joseph Goldstein, who lives on the East Coast. Um, and we got to talk about, you know, four decades of teaching together and tell stories and so forth. And there were also a lot of old friends who I hadn't seen, some of them, for, for quite a long time. I was at a Joan Baez concert on Saturday night in San Jose. She and, and uh, um, Amy Lou Harris and Jackson Brown did this great benefit for, for the homeless projects in the streets of San Jose. It was fabulous. And she was talking to the crowd, which in certain ways was somewhat older, as you might imagine. There was a lot of gray hair there. And she said, you know, I keep looking to have a connection with the younger demographic. Um, so I went on tour with the Indigo Girls, and we had a bunch of younger people come. And then she said some young man came up to her, 15 years old, to ask for an autograph. She was so pleased. She signed it, and he said, yeah, it's for my grandma. <laughs> so those of you here under 30, you know, we actually have, we have full retreats of, um, we have young adults retreats and teen retreats, and they're full, and it's really great that there's this whole, you know, many generations. But we talked about what it was like for ourselves back in our 20s to do practice, um, and that calling that each of us has in our own way, in our own season in our life, to look at the bigger questions of what matters, or who are we, or how do we get into this human incarnation, and how do we live with it wisely? Um, and there's a passage from the Visuddhimagga, one of the great texts of our tradition, that says, if the seeds of awakening did not exist within you, there would be no path and no fulfillment. But those are, seeds are what turn you. You already have it in you. And so Joseph talked about his first trip in India to go to Bodh Gaya, which is the, the, the small town where the temple of the Buddha's enlightenment, the tree of his Buddha's enlightenment, all these different temples are that's been there for thousands of years. And he said he took the train from Calcutta, and it was so crowded in Howrah Station, a couple million people a day go through there. He said he was going with some friends, and in order to get a seat and place for luggage, they pushed him, and he's big, he's like 6'4", they pushed him through the window of the car so he could get in <laughs> faster than, you know, and what it was like, third-class trains in India in those days. And um, I just thought about the kind of um, ardor in some way 
that we, I too, going and living in a forest monastery, that a lot of us in, in our youthful search in some way said, there's something we want to find out that we didn't learn necessarily in school or in, in university that was more, that was not just the education of um, history or mathematics or science or philosophy, the kinds of things I might have studied, um, but it was really the education of the heart. And how do we live? How do we deal with our emotions? How do we live wisely with one another? How do we find our values and so forth? Um, and so we were pulled somehow to do it. We were young and Joseph said to his first encounter with his teacher Manindra, um, and I think both of us were pulled to this training in mindfulness because at least I have a quite complicated mind. And so I looked at Tibetan things a little bit and they were so complicated. I said, wait, this is, I already do this. How about something very simple? Um, and Joseph's teacher Manindra said to him, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. He said, okay, this is the kind of instruction I need. How do I do that? You know, so there we were and um, we told these stories about starting our first retreat center in Massachusetts. Um, I began to teach when I was 29, and we got our retreat center just a, a year or so afterwards. So we kind of did it, as we say, without adult supervision. We were kind of, okay, we, we'll, we'll try to do this as best we can. Um, and um, one of the things that characterizes our community um, that was both, that is both beautiful and terrifying for us anyway, was that in most communities of Buddhist or Hindu kind of Eastern practice, the teachers came and established their centers. So you had Suzuki Roshi establish the San Francisco Zen Center and various lamas and come and start their Tibetan centers. And when you go into them, they feel culturally like going to that country. You're like you're in Japan a little bit when you go to Zen Center or you're in Tibet a little when you go. Our teachers came, we had all these wonderful teachers, Ajahn Chah, Mahasi Sado, they came, they taught with us, they watched us, they blessed us, and they said, bye, we're going home. And it's up to you guys, you figure it out how to do it. And so we thought, what do you mean? And they said, well, do it in an American way. Okay, we sit in chairs, you know, we don't wear robes, we don't chant in Sanskrit particularly. Um, and so we had to find a, a language in a way that allowed us to express these really beautiful, transformative teachings that was ours in our culture, in our, our way. Um, and um, in some way that simplicity, I think, is part of what's allowed for this great interest that's grown in mindfulness, that plus all the research that Cliff and Richie Davidson people have done, where it's possible to see um, that these teachings are not about becoming a Buddhist, spare your friends and family, um, they're about becoming a Buddha, that you have within you the capacity to live with wakefulness and compassion, and that that's your birthright. Um, one of the first years at our center in Massachusetts, we're about to start our family retreat here. It starts in a couple of days. They put up the basketball net. There's all the, you can see in the meadow, there's all the, there's going to be little swimming pools out there and art supplies and stuff. And in a day or so, this place will be filled with kids and it's really great. Our first family retreat, however, was back in the 70s, was a, was a 
parents retreat instead of kids, we brought our parents to meditate because um, they were wondering what the heck we were doing. So we said, all right, we'll let them come to the center. Um, and so we set up the meditation hall with, you know, comfortable chairs. We made their beds. We put chocolate and flowers on their pillows, <laughs> which got a lot of points. We got really good cooks and so forth. And then we came, we rang the bell, said, please, when you hear the bell, come in to sit. That was sort of new to them. Okay, we'll try it, see what they're doing. And there in the front row was, you know, in several rows, were a whole bunch of people, many of them women, with their pocketbooks in their laps like they were riding the bus or something like that, <laughs> kind of waiting to maybe to make their escape. So anyway, um, it's been a great ride. And, um, and I remember coming back, this is kind of a segue from thinking about family retreat, but it's a segue to the theme of tonight's talk. Um, uh, I used to also go and take my daughter and family, go up to a family camp in the Sierras. We did that here for oh, 10 or 15 years. It was quite wonderful and with my brothers and lots of nieces and nephews and so forth. Um, and the camp that we went to, um, Camp Mather, um, has a little lake there and kids, you can go canoeing and there's a little pond also and the, the, the younger kids like to go frogging or pollywogging and they have these little nets to try to catch these bullfrogs or especially the big fat pollywogs that are there at that time in the life cycle. Um, and I remember having this conversation with some of the staff, the young staff who were, some of whom were Buddhist practitioners or learning meditation and they were concerned because the kids um, that year were not being very respectful of the pollywogs. They would catch them and then they'd leave them out in the sun and they'd dry, dry and they'd die. And they what are we going to do, you know? And so then they announced a new rule and they made a sign by the pollywog pond that said, you kill it, you eat it. <laughs> and it worked really well, you know? <laughs> um, and the reason I tell the story is that it has something to do with tonight's Dharma theme, which is to be both sympathetic and realistic, that those two have to go hand in hand. It's not like some idealistic thing that you become some special person. You actually live in this human incarnation, this life of community and people and um, the tasks of our humanity but in a way that's beautiful and wise and gracious. Now, where I lived as a, and trained as a monk in Thailand, it was a forest monastery along the kind of the area that was toward the Mekong River Valley, and at that time it was relatively wild. Um, and there were cobras in the forest, you know, so at night sometimes, in one of the forest monasteries I lived, when you'd walk at night, you'd tap the walk, path with a little stick so things would crawl out of the way before you stepped on them and they got upset. Um, and I remember my teacher saying, you know, practice is meditation practice, dharma practice is a little bit like living with a cobra. Um, how do you find serenity in circumstances that could be unexpected? and sometimes difficult. How do you find a way of living even though there are 
dangers, there are things that will come that, you know, may not be exactly what you want. Um, or, you know, our common parlance in some way to expect the unexpected. And then the teachings were of mindfulness that invites us to become more present where we are, not spaced out, not spending so much time someplace else, but actually to be present in the reality of the present and bring a quality of both attention and respect and a graciousness with it that I talked about last week, Ajahn Chah called the wisdom of uncertainty, that things are going to change and it's like surfing. You can't stop the waves, but you learn how to surf in some way. When I teach residential meditation retreats over many years, we have little brief meetings or interviews with students every day or two. And a lot of the meetings that we have, the communication, is basically one of reassurance. They're sitting there and they feel like their mind is out of control or they're doubting or their body's hurting or they don't know if they're making progress or going backwards or their emotions because you sit quietly and then all the unfinished business of the heart starts to reveal itself and the things that want to be healed show themselves and the longings and so forth. And it's not like, you know, you look very peaceful. But if you could like turn the volume up, you know, you'd run out of the meditation hall because everybody would be, anyway. And crazy. And so, you know, there's bodily release and all these emotions and fears and hopes and I didn't finish this and I need to do that and creativity attacks and trauma and so forth. And then the Buddha said, if it were not possible to free the heart from entanglements, I would not teach you to do so. But because it is possible, I offer these teachings to you. You also can learn how to do this. And so how do you do it? You do it through the art of mindfulness or mindful presence. We could call it loving awareness. The presence that can bow to what arises as we did in the sitting we just had with both clarity or spaciousness and compassion or kind heart. And a lot of the reassurance is that, as the neuroscientists talk about, is that we can expand our window of tolerance from things that are scary, like our fears or our, you know, our loss or longing or whatever that we kind of stuff away. And often we'll just say, well, how big is it? If you actually let yourself feel it, what would it be like? Tell me, show me, you know. Really? Is it okay? I just weep tears, you know, I think there'd be no end to these tears. I say, well, okay, let's see what happens, right? Because we're frightened of the things that we've turned away from or hidden away in ourselves. And the invitation, like the Buddhist texts that begin with the words, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember your capacity to awaken, remember your original dignity, remember the great heart of compassion that is there to be awakened in you. And that seed, that possibility of awakening, which we have, of opening, of seeing, what a mystery we're born into, and not just living in kind of automatic pilot. That seed of awakening and even of compassion is there, you know, you find it even in, you know, tyrants and dictators love their children. There's something in there 
we hope anyway. Um, Pema Chodron, in one of her many great books, the Tibetan, American Tibetan Nun, in the places that scares you, she starts talking about how she was six years old and she was walking along the street near where she lived. There was an old woman sitting there and she said, I felt so lonely and unloved and mad and I was kicking anything I could find. And the woman just looked at me and laughed and she said, little girl, don't you go letting life harden your heart. She said, and that was as good an instruction I'd ever, as I've ever gotten from all these lamas and teachers. Um, a really beautiful instruction. Here's a different version of that. Sort of a poem. Listen to the exhortation of the dawn. Look to this day, for it is life, the very life of life. In its brief course lie all the verities and realities of your existence, the glory of action, the bliss of growth, the splendor of beauty. For yesterday is but a dream, and tomorrow only a vision. But today, well lived, makes every yesterday a dream of happiness, and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Look well, therefore, to this day, such is the salutation the dawn offers you. So this passage is from the Quran. And I'm happy to read it because even though the Quran and the Bible are filled in some measure with old tribal histories and a fair amount of smiting and stuff like that, <laughs> there is also in other parts some very beautiful and visionary wisdom. It's like they're trying to figure out, okay, which way are we going to go with this? And unfortunately, they're still trying to figure it out. But we'll leave that leave that aside, not just the Muslims, but you know, everybody in that. So we'll leave that aside. But as we honestly and deeply pay attention to our own life, like living in that forest monastery, um, it's not the cobras, but it's the way people drive on the freeways, you know. Um, it's the complexity um, of modern life. It's the economic up and downs. Um, and we see the worldly winds of gain and loss and praise and blame and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute and these that weave our life. They constantly change and unexpectedly we'll have loss or unexpectedly we'll have blame or sometimes expectedly but it'll come anyway. You know it will or, 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 or pain. And there are different strategies then. One is to deny, to close, to be afraid, to ignore, to harden ourselves in some way as a kind of protection, to struggle. And the other is, as we practice tonight, to bow, to relax, to meet the experiences that life offers you with compassion and spaciousness. <coughs> Because what's true is it is all impermanent. And suffering is woven into the fabric of life. You can't possess things. You get them for a little while and then you have to leave them. Even your own body, you rent it, basically. You take care of it, the odometer keeps going around, right? At some point you've got to return it to Hertz or whatever it is. Um, 
And sometimes we mistake pleasure for happiness. And pleasure is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. Um, But we get the idea, especially in America, somehow in the culture, to get as many moments of pleasure as possible. And it's like being the moth to the flame more and more. Um, But the problem with that is that that kind of grasping and so forth, it doesn't work when there's praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. You know, because then you start to think you're a failure. I'm not getting pleasure all the time. And so then the question is, well, is there happiness without a hangover? (laughs) You know, is there some other way to find happiness in this human life? And part of the answer for you to inquire into and look is that life is also difficult, as well as, you know, glorious and beautiful and magnificent. So the first noble truth of the Buddha, um, which says that life includes suffering and loss and so forth, um, how many people in this room are now, in this, this week, going through some difficulties in your life? Raise your hand. <laughs> Okay, that's half. The other of you are lying, I know. <laughs> no, you could be having a good day. It's fine. It's all right. I'm just teasing you. But you could see, even if, it, if we accept the half for the moment, you know, statistically or demographically, that this is the deal. This is human life. It's not a mistake. So instead of fearing it, resisting it, medicating it, and so forth, you could also meet it with sympathy and compassion and a great heart of the Buddha that is in you. And this is a kind of deep and difficult work. It's not all that easy. Here's a poem from William Stafford, one of our great American poets. And it's a very simple and kind of tender poem about difficulties just that that happens. Traveling through the dark, I found a a deer dead on the edge of the Wilson River Road. It's usually best to roll them into the canyon. The road is high and narrow. To swerve might make more dead. By the glow of the taillight, I stumbled back of the car and stood by a doe, a recent killing. She had stiffened already, almost cold. I dragged her off the road. She was large in the belly. My fingers touching her side brought me the reason. Her side was warm. Her fawn lay there waiting, still never to be born. Beside that mountain road, I hesitated. The car aimed ahead its lowered parking lights. Under the hood purred the steady engine. I stood in the glare of the warm exhaust turning red. Around our group, I could hear the wilderness listen. I thought hard for us all, my only swerving, and then pushed her carefully over the edge into the cold river. And you can hear his tenderness and his care and his respect And at the same time, you also hear the suffering. Here's loss, here's death, here's something that wants to be born that won't be. 
And we all have that. We have things that are born and that are beautiful, and then things that don't get completed. Sometimes our life is nourished and blessed and filled with a kind of bounty. But even when that's so, and I've had in many ways really a blessed life, we also carry the life of others, Syria and Burma and Sudan and Palestine and Israel and the whales and the polar bears and the condors and something in our heart knows they're part of our life as well. I read a story of a young woman who was traveling in the Middle East and in a village and all of a sudden she was with some friends, American friends, this whole crowd came out and started taunting and jeering and maybe we're going to throw stones and at first she was just terrified. And then something shifted and she began to identify with all the people who've been despised in the world for what country they come from or the color of their skin or their ethnic group or their sexual identity or, or something about them that made them different or threatening. And she realized, oh, this is what we do to one another. She hadn't experienced it. And so this great wave of compassion grew in her. Oh, okay, now I see what it's like to be out, to be targeted, to be lost, which we all are at some point, in some way or another. So how are we going to get out of this? Some people want some big, like, mother bird to come and feed and rescue and care for them. You know, and we feel raw and featherless and ugly little chicks, you know, sitting there in their meditation. That's what it feels like inside. (laughs) And compassion and loving kindness allows us to shift from that identity of the small sense of self to dignity, nobility in this human incarnation, to, to a kind of beauty to begin to plant the seeds of goodness um, with the life that we've been given, with its joys, 10,000 joys, and its 10,000 sorrows. And this is from Henry David Thoreau, where he writes, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I'm prepared to expect wonders. And in many ways, spiritual life, Thich Nhat Hanh uses the phrase, watering the seeds of beauty. And those are seeds of compassion, seeds of care for yourself and others. Planting and nourishing and watering the seeds as you move through this world. Johnny Appleseed S. Or something like that. But you don't just do it, you have to practice. That's why we call it meditation practice rather than perfect or something like that. You have to kind of... um, Ursula Le Guin, she says, love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made like bread, remade all the time, made anew every day. 
and this is the making of bread, the planting of seeds, the giving yourself in an artful way or in a beautiful way to the field of circumstances with its pleasure and pain and with its gain and loss, with the difficulties that half of you raised your hand about and the other half will find coming next week. <laughs> you know it's true. <laughs> now because it's difficult for us in the West, and we've talked about this, to direct loving-kindness and compassion to ourselves very often. It feels like, oh, this is egotistical or weird or, you know, if I'd say, may I wish myself to be happy? What about all those other suffering people? As if your misery is going to help those suffering people somehow. You're so loyal to your suffering. Anyway, um, so often in the training and practice of loving-kindness, rather than starting with yourself now, I'd like to start by envisioning one or two people where the relationship isn't so complicated who you love a lot and your wishes for them and you think oh I love you may you be safe and well protected and then there with compassion there's the invitation when you think of somebody even now as I talk who you love a lot and so forth and you wish them well also then there comes the invitation to become aware of their measure of sorrows their struggle like every human being has in life. And there is this person you love, who you're wishing well, and you see, okay, they too have a measure of suffering and struggle and difficulty and sorrows. And immediately your heart starts to open with compassion for them, because you want them to be well. You picture another person you care about, and you wish them well, happiness, may you be well and safe, protected, healed. And then you look in your mind's eye and you see, oh, what if I let myself also see their measure of sorrows, their sufferings or struggles or pains they have? We all have them. And then this tenderness starts to open. And then the next movement, you open the channel, however you can, however it's easy for you, is you turn it back and imagine them looking back at you. And these people who you love and who you have this tender feeling to and you sense their <coughs> beauty and your well-wishing and also the compassion for their struggles, they look back at you and they say, hey, dude, hey, woman, you know, you're in this game too. And they look at you with such loving, compassionate eyes and say, yeah, may you be well and safe. May you be protected and healed. And, oh, we see your struggles too. We see your measure of sorrows, and their compassion comes to you. And you go, oh yeah, maybe if these people who I love would return it to me, maybe I'm worthy of receiving that compassion. Put your hand on your own heart. Okay, may I, just as I offer this tenderness and care to them, may I also offer it to myself. Because we all have fears and loneliness and our pains and our trauma, you know, or we have families, enough said. <laughs> Nuclear family, there's a reason those words go together, right? You know. And you start to say, okay, this is our human condition. And as you do, the 
heart of the Buddha starts to open in you. And it's not complicated. It's meeting what you experience with spaciousness, with a respect of awareness, and with the heart of compassion, yes, especially when it's difficult. And I think I talked a little bit when I was up, up there in the retreat hall with Joseph uh, yesterday about one of our teachers, this monk from Cambodia, Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia and nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize a number of times and so forth, who led 19 of his 20 family members were killed in the Cambodian Holocaust. And um, he led all these peace marches for 15 years. And he was the most senior monk in the country, kind of very revered. And he didn't stay in the temples. He said, if we're to reclaim our country, we have to do it a step at a time. And so he would take 100 or 500 people and say, we will walk back to your village. We won't take the bus or the, you know, get in the back of a pickup truck. And we'll chant loving kindness with every step and reclaim this land with love that has been so destroyed. And he'd go through the jungles and carrying, the monks would be carrying their bells and chanting the chants that go, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And they'd take a few more steps and ring their bells and do that across the countryside. And people would come out of the bushes, soldiers, you know, people who'd been in hiding because their families or their temples or villages had been burned. And one person I know was a monk who was traveling with him, said this soldier came out of the bushes, you know, as they did in, and they'd, they'd lay their rifles on the ground and weep to hear this message of peace because they didn't want to be soldiers, a lot of them. And this one soldier came up and said to my friend who had the bell, it's such a beautiful bell. Would you give it to me so I can remember this moment? And the monk said, yes, I'll give it to you in exchange for your rifle. And the young soldier said, I can't do it. If I give away my rifle when I go back, they'll probably shoot me. And the monk is walking, chanting, loving kindness. He said, all right, I'll give you the bell for all the rounds in your clip. And he dumped out all the ammunition in his gun. And that was the trade, to have his hand full of the bullets and take in his hand the bell of loving kindness. So that's really the gesture, I and mean, it's a magnificent story. And at the same time, it's really our human story, because we all get in conflict. Maybe not that bad, but we do. You have your conflicts. We all have our struggles and so forth. And how do we meet them? Can we meet them with simplicity? the simplicity of presence, loving awareness, and sympathy. And allow the measure of beauty, you know, the unbearable beauty of this earth, and the measure of tears to touch our hearts. My twin brother is married to a woman, Tori, who's been a high school English teacher, or was for 33 years or something like that, quite beloved by her students. She's funny and outspoken and, and um, you know, uh, really likes to get down with her kids and whatever. And um, she retired last year, 
and she thought, okay, I'll tend my garden, I'll have retirement. The, the week after she retired, she got a phone call from the local um, Democratic Party saying the woman who was running for the state representative from their district had gotten pregnant and dropped out, and would she consider running? And she did decide to do it. She didn't know what she was going to do. But it turned out, you know, that half the people in the district had been her students in high school. So it was actually pretty easy in that way. Um, but anyway, she said, you know, I had this one girl in my class. I've got, she's one of those people, which I don't have, and I really kind of envy and admire it, who can learn the name of 30 people like that and remember it. And it's so beautiful. So she said, I had this one girl in my class, and she kind of, half dropped out because her parents got divorced and um, that was in freshman year and then a couple of years later her mother got cancer and was dying and she went to live with her mean stepmother and you know the divorced father and it was just really um, you know the, the girl had had a really really rough period and she said um, one day I was driving to high school, it was a couple years after this girl would have graduated, a really cold day, and this is Maine, so you get that, yeah. right? And I saw her walking along the street. So I pulled over and I said, can I take you anywhere? She said, yeah, I need a ride down to McDonald's, that's where I'm working now. And Tori said, okay, get in. How are you doing? It's good you have a job, you know, and just talk to her a little bit. And then when they pulled into McDonald's, she got out, she just looked at her and she said, Mrs. Cornfield? She said, Mrs. Cornfield, I love you. And closed the car door. And it's that simple, you know. It's attending with care to what presents itself, with sympathy and planting the seeds that you want this world to be. It's also not that easy, because even as you sit in meditation and you think, all right, I'll quiet the mind, and it's good to tune yourself to the moments of calm and well-being that start to come, the little gaps between the thoughts and busyness, or the moments where you feel your body go, oh, I'm here, I'm not running around, and so forth, it's good. But then within you is every other possibility. You know, the mind has no pride, and it will do anything. That's one of Joseph's lies, right? And it has joy and sorrow and plans and regrets and revenge. You know, it does. Um, and you've been the little chick in the nest, and you've been the mother, and you've been the predator. And there are days when the mother tends to the little birds, and then there's a certain day where the mother says, okay, baby, it's time to fly, and kind of pushes you out of the nest. And, that's all part of the cycle of being an incarnate being. Joy and sorrow and gain and loss. It's all there, all the voices. Desire. I love Alison Luderman, poet and friend, where she says you sit with your desire, you know, and then you hear these teachings. Not exactly right, because there's healthier, wise desire, but you should be free from desire and attachment just to plant the seeds and open to what comes or something like that. She said, but that's strange. She said, it's like being on a diet and hiding the chocolate chips, but only you know where those chocolate chips are hidden, right? Because you can't separate yourself from desire. This is also the desire realm. The human realm is one of 
living with the paradox of desire and longing and yet not getting swept up in it in ways that are unhealthy. And I don't have to explain much further than that. You all understand. It's to honor it and use it in a healthy way. So simple. This is from Ted Kuzier, who was our National Poet Laureate some years ago. Poem about, called Selecting a Reader. Poets imagine who's going to read their poetry, right? First I would have her be beautiful, (laughs) and walking carefully up on my poetry at the loneliest moment of an afternoon, her hair still damp at the neck from washing it. She should be wearing a raincoat, dirty from not having money enough for the cleaners. She will take out her glasses, and there in the bookstore, she will thumb thoughtfully over my poems, then put the back on, book back on the shelf. She will say to herself, for that kind of money I can get my raincoat cleaned. <laughs> and she will. So the point of spiritual practice isn't to become a spiritual person, you know, whatever ideas and ideals you have of that. It's actually to become your own best self, to be yourself with dignity and care and nobility, to use your daily meditation, if you do it daily or regularly, or whatever supports you, to come back quietly and listen to your heart walking in the mountains and being by the ocean and stopping because we're so busy and listening to what matters in the midst of the waves of incoming life. Attention to what is has curiosity, a willingness to be present, a learning to be open with honesty And the honesty has to be married to compassion because you'll get your measure of sorrows and you can't be honest if your heart isn't also tender with it. Otherwise, it's too hard or too scary or you want to change it or something. So marrying a a presence with love, loving awareness is another way to put it, to begin to trust loving awareness where you are, not an ideal, but growing in you this capacity. And to meditate and practice isn't self-improvement in the sense that you're going to change your personality. I'm sorry to say this. <laughs> you get a body when you come in. You get the, like, the ticket for the e-ticket ride at Disneyland. You get a particular body, right? Certain shape and color and hair color and all that. Okay, this incarnation, here's what it looks like. Right? And you get a personality. And yes, it's shaped by those dear ones around you somewhat. But mostly, anybody who's had a number of kids knows this. They come in and they are themselves, right? And so you're, you know, that's what you got. You might as well enjoy it. Because it's, you know, that's what you get for the ride. So the point isn't to change who you are, 
but to let what's beautiful in you shine through who you are. And your practice of quieting the mind and loving awareness and presence is to transform this magnificent dance, measure of joy and sorrow, into the very place of awakening for you. Because this is it. And this is the gift of humanity. And even though some of you may be struggling quite genuinely, some with difficult illnesses and diagnoses, some with economic troubles, some with you know, addictions or great struggles in your family or all kinds of other things. I know that that's also true here. We still have a relatively favorable circumstance for awakening. And sometimes those very difficulties are the place if you are willing to turn toward them rather than run. Um, in Africa, um, when lions hunt, they'll often have an old lion and place, he'll, he'll place himself somewhere and wait for the gazelles to come along. And then on the other side, a bit away, hidden in the grasses or the bushes, are the young lionesses who are the real hunters. And as the gazelles come along, the old lion will roar. And if they're not wise gazelles, they're, they're in trouble, right? Because they'll run away. And the saying, the African saying is, run toward the roar. Can you understand this? It's like leaning into the wind and learning like someone who's a sailor, you know, that even the difficulties of your life, those become the place to open your heart of compassion. That's what's possible for you. One more poem from Seshla Milosh, if I'm saying his name right, wonderful Nobel Prize winning poet from, looks like from Poland, I think, called True Love. True love means to look at yourself the way one looks at distant things, for you are only one thing among many, and whoever sees that way heals her heart. Without knowing it, heals from various ills. The bird and a tree say to her, Friend, beloved sister, we have found you. Then she wants to use herself and honor things so that they stand in the glow of ripeness. It doesn't matter whether she knows what she serves. Who serves best doesn't always understand. So comes love. We live in a culture in which it's easy to feel isolated, especially when I come back from traveling elsewhere in cultures where there's a village culture or a community culture or the kind of warm-hearted connection that you have when there's still multiple generations together. And here it's like one person in their little metal box on the freeway, you know, 
and one person in a room in a big house and so forth. And we have that kind of luxury of space and freedom and also in many cases a profound longing for connection and loneliness. But you aren't alone. You're really woven into this life. And whoever sees this way heals her heart without knowing it from all the ills, the bird, the trees, say to her, beloved sister, we found you. And then she wants to use herself and honor all things. So the meditation is really a gateway, a doorway to quiet the mind, become present with loving awareness, to trust and plant the seeds and grow this capacity of compassion for your human lot and do something magnificent with your life. A seed at a time. So let's sit. It's so lovely just to have the stillness. So I thank you for that, for your kind attention and your generosity to Spirit Rock, to one another. I'll be traveling for a few weeks, so you, those who come on Monday night, you'll have my colleague and good friend Mark Coleman doing classes. Um, and then I'll see you in a few weeks if you want. Who knows? Maybe, inshallah. Drive politely out.